This podcast is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Stay tuned for more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. You know, as soon as we get the creation and, and the garden, we get the transgression immediately. Um, our plight before God as sinners is described as an exile. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you? Well, Jonathan. We are privileged today to be joined by a colleague of mine, someone who I get to see virtually every day, who's right across the hall, Dr. Michael Morales, who serves as Professor of Biblical Studies here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And we want to talk with him today about his most recent book, Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption. So, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Jonathan and James, for having me. I wanted to begin by contrasting this book with maybe what some might think when they pick up an Exodus volume. This isn't an Exodus commentary. It's not, it doesn't go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. But, but what are you trying to do instead of that? So it's not a commentary on Exodus, but what is it? So we're looking at the Exodus motif as a major biblical theological theme. And so there are several chapters that cover specifically Exodus 1 through 15, looking at big ideas of the Exodus, like Moses, the leader of the Exodus, and things like that. But then we're looking at how that motif gets picked up. It becomes the major paradigm of salvation in the Old Testament, and even, I argue, in the New Testament. So, for example, when uh, the tribes of Israel are exiled uh, after breaking the covenant, uh, God raises up prophets to say there's going to be a new exodus, a second exodus, and there's certain elements to expect with that. And then the gospel writers, when they uh, recount uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways they use these exodus motifs to demonstrate uh, what he has accomplished for us. Does the exodus motif begin in the book of Exodus? So it goes beyond it into the New Testament, but is that where we get it introduced to us? I think it's arguable that it, it begins uh, really in page one of the Bible. Uh, there was an old generation of scholars that read the creation account, for example, in terms of the Exodus. No, I don't agree with that take, but I do think that the Exodus account, specifically I'm thinking here of the sea crossing, uh, is looking back to the creation account and all of that creation theology uh, begins well before. But I also have a chapter on the life of Abraham where I tried to show that in many ways, some of these motifs uh, come out in his life that he, in a sense, had an Exodus-shaped life. So that was well before, of course, the people of God. There's a rabbinical saying that this is everything that happened to the children of Israel first happened to the patriarchs, and I think that's an example of that. Michael, I wonder if you could um, describe some of the basic ingredients of this motif. What, when you look in the scripture and you find it not simply in the event of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt, even though that's a sort of... Um, almost paradigmatic event for the Old Testament. Obviously, Isaiah is saying, uh, forget the things of the past that's going to happen again on, on a different scale. What is that? What is in that motif? What are you looking for in scripture? Like say when you find it in Abraham or in the 
you know, or in the children of Israel or in the promised second, second exodus of the prophets or in Jesus, what, what needs to be there for the exodus motif to be working? That's a good question, James. Uh, the, the basic paradigm is a restoration out of exile. And so in the introduction to the book, I do point out that you know, as soon as we get the creation and, and the garden, we get the transgression immediately. Um, our plight before God as sinners is described as an exile. And so we're looking for God to bring people out of exile. And so back to that chapter on Abraham, you know, the Lord says in the Genesis 15, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur. And that's basically what we would know as an Exodus formula. He'll repeat that, as you know, in Exodus 20, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so that, again, is going to be the great paradigm for when God's people end up in exile again, but also the nations that are in exile. So that's one of the basic motifs is being brought out of exile back to God. Um, other ones include one of the major goals or emphases would be that uh, the Exodus deliverance is for the glory of Yahweh. That is, it'll publish the name of Yahweh so that the nations will know him. And you know, Ezekiel for the second Exodus, this is one of the major lines that are just interspersed throughout his prophecy, then they will know that I'm Yahweh, just as we read through the, the plague narrative in the book of Exodus. So there are two. Another big one is, of course, that the restoration out of exile uh, requires redemption. Blood must be shed. And so the whole Passover motif uh, is in, in mind. Even in the Psalms, you know, we have David looking to the promise that God will provide a redemption for his people. And this again gets taken up. So uh, if the people return out of Babylonian exile without any of this Passover motif taking place, it means, well, there's a political release, but that second exodus hasn't yet happened. And that, of course, is taken up by the gospel writers. So simply uh, uh, a remnant returning from Babylon to Judea at the end of the Old Testament doesn't... Um, sort of wrap it up and put a bow on top as far as what was being prophesied by the exilic era prophets. Exactly. And that's actually a topic I've just been covering uh, this past week in, in class in a New Testament biblical theology course. You know, there are some who take the restoration and they belittle it. Um, and then there's the other extreme where you have scholars say, this is the full restoration. We have nothing else to hope. Uh, but I think there's a, an in-between here, certainly when we read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that God's good hand was involved in bringing his people back. But certainly uh, in this Exodus book, I list, I think, uh, four or five um, expectations of the second Exodus. One of them is that the new Moses will be a new David reigning on the throne. The Holy Spirit will be poured out, and clearly these things have not happened after the restoration uh, mm. out of Babylon. I wonder if that... It, I does that explain some of the um, uh, disconsolation and disillusion of the people at the end of the Old Testament? There's a sense of, there's almost a sense of despairing of Yahweh because this just can't be that thing uh, that was promised. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we, we read about the, the elders who wept when they saw the, the second temple. Uh, the glory was so diminished from Solomon's uh, temple. And I think that's part of God's catechism to let them know this isn't yet the time, this isn't the fulfillment. And of course, we have the great prophecy of Daniel, where God kind of gives the further fine print to the restoration after 70 years, uh, that it's actually going to be 70 weeks of years, and, and 
closer to 500 years before some of these promises are going to come into effect. And so, you know, God's people needed to prepare the next generation and the generation after that to, like the great message of Daniel, to persevere and be willing to suffer for your faith until that time of refreshing comes. So I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm born free. Um, and I have, you know, I was born on a farm and my parent, my father was born on the same farm before me. Am I an exile? In other words, do I, do I need to come home? Is there, there's a sense in which I, I, I like to think I've got a home. Um, why would I need an exodus? I've, I, it almost feels like I'm not in exile, but you're saying for this motif to work, there needs to be exile. How, do, how does someone who doesn't live in one of those biblical lands or in those events narrated, how, how does this motif of exodus come to bear for them? That's a great question. And it's one of the reasons uh, why I risk making the, the book a little thicker than it normally would have been otherwise by spending more time in Genesis 1 through 11 just as a preliminary. So uh, that universal history ends with the nations in exile, passed away from the presence of God. And, and that's really um, the, the great backdrop to the call of Abraham in the next chapter. So Abraham is called to bring the blessing back to the nations that is to restore them back to God. And so, um, you know, for people living in Iowa or China or Brazil, uh, we are among the nations and we are exiled from God. And so uh, we need to be brought back to God in this, you know, what we call right now a spiritual exodus. And now the odd thing is, once we've experienced that exodus, then we become exiles in a different sense. I try to bring that out in, in the Abraham chapter, but this is basically Hebrews 11 theology. Um, Abraham knew that um, all of his hope didn't anchor in his own lifespan or specific plot of real estate. We are foreigners and pilgrims waiting for the consummate exodus when we are brought into the new heavens and the new earth. Michael, you talked there about the, the consummation of the exodus, and I want to get into that a little bit further, particularly with what you said earlier about the Old Testament ending on this note of anticipation, or really this note of almost mourning um, given what wasn't there. But just to lead into that, you chose a few key portions of scripture to highlight this Exodus motif. Why did you choose the ones you chose? Uh, so before we get to the consummation part, what, what about the steps along the way? Because when you describe the Exodus motif, there's a sense in which it's, it's everywhere. It's all over the Bible. Yeah, it was difficult. As I mentioned, I think in the preface in the book, there's, there's just endless uh, monographs, studies, articles on you know, the Exodus motif in the Book of Esther and the Book of Romans. So, you know, it's some subjectivity here, but I, I decided to look at the three major movements. Um, so the historical Exodus out of Egypt, the prophesied second Exodus, and then um, the New Testament, uh, new Exodus accomplished by Christ. Um, I'm not sure if this is what, where your question was going, but as far as the, for the prophets, I give a summary chapter of motifs found in different uh, prophets, kind of subsumed under five major elements of expectation. But then I concentrate two chapters on the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah, uh, you know, as one scholar uh, wrote that I quoted in the book, uh, he, he talks about Isaiah being more about the Exodus than the book of Exodus itself. So there's just pervasive Exodus language from beginning to end but also uh, the comprehensive view that Isaiah gives us with the suffering servant leading 
the Exodus, you know, is one big reason why I chose that book. And then, for example, in, in the New Testament, I, I just chose the Gospel of John. Um, it, it was so rich, and again, I was quickly running out of space, and I thought that I could really accomplish everything I wanted to with the Gospel of John and the way it serves as a great lead-in to the book of Revelation. There's been, even recently, several books written about um, the Exodus motif, but for whatever reason, the Gospel of John wasn't highlighted, and to me, um, it's just a gold mine. so it was a great joy to uh, pursue those layers in, in the Gospel. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. You, we left off at the end of the Old Testament with the return from exile, but it's not really a full return. It's not everything that was promised. And, and you talked about how the Lord worked through that in a good way, but nonetheless, uh, there was something missing. So how do those pieces get filled in in the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation? How does that consummation work itself out? Well, there's a number of ways, uh, but just uh, thinking about the Passover motif, so there is a chapter specifically on how Jesus is the Passover Lamb of God in the Gospel of John, and uh, one easy illustration of that would be the bookends in his Gospel. So, the opening chapter, Jesus is introduced onto the stage of his public ministry as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, twice in that chapter, he's called the Lamb of God. And from a literary perspective, that, that slaps a label on him, and he's Lamb of God for the rest of the gospel, and that really comes to a, a climactic point when he's crucified in chapter 19. So, John is the only one out of all four gospels that gives us that little scene where, uh, because he was already dead, the uh, Roman soldier did not need to break his legs. Instead, he speared him. But John tells us that was to fulfill the legislation that not one of his bones should be broken taking us back to the Passover legislation so that we can understand the cross as uh, the anti-type, um, the culmination of the Passover redemption. Here the Lamb of God has been slain, His blood has been shed for the redemption of the people of God, that the cross is the doorpost of the world. And um, it, with those two bookends then, you know, we, we see the, the Exodus theology, some of the Passover motif, but then for the resurrection, um, I bring out a lot of the Edenic imagery, which then goes back to the fact that humanity has been in exile ever since we've been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and now we're restored so that the Exodus is really into the new creation of paradise. And so those are a few. Um, I mentioned some, some other aspects in that Gospel of John chapter, but it's, um, it's pretty rich. I don't know if you had anything else in mind. No, I, I think I, I was I was trying to anticipate our listeners' um, question when we got to the end of the Old Testament, like where, where so not just uh, how are we partakers of that Exodus today? That's a critically important question, but how does the Bible kind of finish that story using those those Exodus elements? Yeah, so we see the what we might call the spiritual. Exodus for the church. Um, I mean, it's a literal exodus for Christ. Uh, he dies to this old creation. He suffers the judgment of God as a substitutionary lamb, but he's resurrected as a new creation and then ascends to the paradise of God's presence. Uh, but again, we, we experience that spiritually now, but yet the Bible story leads us on to the book of Revelation, where a lot of the same themes, I mean, Jesus, after all, on this common appellation from the book of Revelation is the lamb slain. And um, 
We read about him being worthy because he shed his blood to restore the nations unto God. And then, of course, chapter 21 and 22 ends with that glorious um, fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 2 of the nations streaming to Zion, which really then, again, is a reversal of the Tower of Babel where the nations are being scattered from God's presence. But in Revelation 21 and 22, we see the nations flowing into the new Jerusalem and 21.3, the fulfillment of the covenant, you know, behold, the tabernacle of God is uh, among humanity and, and God will dwell with them. They will be his peoples in which um, that really is the culmination of the Exodus movement. So God's people are delivered out of Egypt and brought into this covenant relationship with God, restored to fellowship with him where he's dwelling in their midst. So that's really the way the Bible ends, the, the fruition of the, the salvation that, that Christ as our Passover lamb accomplished. As you work through this, you've taught uh, Pentateuch any number of times. And, and obviously this, this book goes beyond the, the book of Exodus in the Pentateuch. It's, it's exploring a biblical theological theme. But um, were there sort of aha moments along the way for you where you saw this in places as a more pronounced theme than perhaps you had before or saw implications of it in a, in a more pronounced way? Yes. Unfortunately, I'm awful at <laughs> recollecting spur of the moment, but the, the whole, <laughs> to me, writing is a process of learning and even, even ideas that I already knew and even been teaching, once you get into the exegesis and you see kind of the depth of it, um, I was just filled with wonder and, and worship really all along the way. Um, working on the that Abraham chapter, for example, that really washed over me afresh. Uh, just um, how Exodus shaped his life was, and especially that vision of, of the um, uh, the torch and and the, the billowing smoke, the way that the rabbis had connected that to the crossing of the sea. Um, a lot of these things, it just filled me with wonder. But then also the chapter on Isaiah, I took a summer just to catch up on Isaiah's studies. And uh, I love biblical theology, and I love being able to get a handle on books through themes like the Exodus and just catching up on a lot of the literature and seeing how extensive, and especially the point that I make in one of the chapters on the suffering servant, how each of those songs of the servant are surrounded contextually by Exodus uh, motifs and Exodus echoes. Uh, to me, it, you know, it was breathtaking. This is how God will lead the new Exodus through his suffering servant. Michael, I like that you subtitled your book, A Biblical Theology of Redemption. Normally, we, we take redemption as sort of synonymous with that salvation, and it might at first blush seem like you are restricting redemption down to this thing, but you're really arguing, even, even I mean, at the heart and soul of a Christian doctrine of redemption is the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you're, you're making the case that this is really the, the consummate passage from um, from uh, exile and dereliction and godlessness, as it were, to a return to blessedness, beatific vision, and home in his resurrection. So that, in fact, Exodus becomes, um, maybe, and I know there are other books in the series, and it's a biblical theology series, and uh, each is going to argue for a prominent place for its motif. Um, but I think a great argument is made uh, for this motif 
of, of exile and return. Your chapter on Abraham as in exile, being in Ur of the Chaldees, um, persuaded me for what it's worth uh, and was certainly new among many other new things uh, in this volume. But um, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I think this is something that if we can get a handle on it, um, it gives us a, a renewed appreciation of what's been accomplished for us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, I'm with you. I, I do think the Exodus theme, understood rightly, the Exodus traditions is not just the exit out of Egypt, but includes the covenant consecration and also the entry into the land. And that movement really is the story of the Bible. However, I should say I can't take credit for the subtitle or the title. I'm not much of a marketer, and it'd be embarrassing to let you know the, the titles I suggested. But I was very happy with um, with the way they went with it. So well, then really, and good on good on the marketer. They got your message <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> hey, Michael, thanks so much for uh, giving us some time today. I really appreciate it. Um, it this was a uh, it was a joy to read this book, and uh, we give it the highest possible commendation to our listeners. And thank you for all your work on it. I'm grateful too. Uh, have this time with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Jonathan, I think this is a book I would put, I was, I was reading again in it the other night, and I thought this is a book I would put in anybody's hands. It's, it's literarily excellent. You and I have talked about this, that Michael yes. is, a, is a gifted writer. Um, I mean, he, anyone who loves Dante has got to have a literary flair, um, and he's a good writer. But more than that, this is, I found that this I found this book not only informative and enriching in terms of my understanding, I found it personally edifying as devotion. We're talking about people without God in the world being brought near to God to dwell with him in beatific vision through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and not in a platitudinous way, but in a in a biblically rich and textured way. I felt like it was um it was refreshment and nourishment all at once. I, I guess that's the highest praise I could, I could give it. Well, no, I agree. I, I mean, and, and it's, you're not alone. I, I had the same sense when I read it and, you know, I, I, I was just with some folks a few nights ago and they unsolicited, they don't know Michael, they said much the same thing you did. And he has this, remarkable ability, not just as a writer, although you're, you're right about his, his writing gifts, but uh, a remarkable ability to show the roots of these grand theological themes that have everything to do with our salvation as sinners. And, and he shows the deep roots of them throughout the biblical text um, in rich ways uh, that are exegetically informed and, uh, you know, immensely, immensely valuable. So I, I'm with you. This is a book that I think will really can really fan the flames of renewed interest in the scripture. If you're if you're reading the Bible and feeling like you've got the message nailed, um, and that there's nothing interesting to receive from the text, uh, a book like this reminds you that the Bible is a deep well of spiritual and intellectual nourishment, um, and it could just revive that interest uh, in you. Yes, I think that's well put. Um, I think it, it will revive that interest in any in anyone who cares to go deeper in their understanding of scriptures. And also, although this is maybe less prevalent, occasionally you can meet people who, because they are so enmeshed in the text of scripture, uh, and rightly so, they sort of think, yeah, that this theological stuff, these the grand theological con conclusions are 
you know, so far removed from the Bible that I love. And what books like this, and there aren't many of them, do, I think, is show you how diving deeper into the Bible actually takes you higher theologically. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, thank you for listening to this um, conversation that James and I were able to have today with Dr. Morales. If you are interested in this book, and you should be, uh, you can go to placefortruth.org, go to the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you to enter your information for an opportunity to win a copy of this uh, book of Dr. Morales's Exodus Old and New, A Biblical Theology of Redemption. We're grateful whenever we hear from listeners. If you are able to contact us or give us a rating on your uh, wherever it is that you download this, uh, that would be a big help to us. In addition, if you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals relies on donations from listeners like you. And if you, if you know of anyone who might benefit from this uh, brief podcast that we do, please pass it along. Uh, we want to be helpful to, to the church and helpful to anyone who might uh, have an interest in, in these kinds of theological things. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your partnership. With your help, we continue to uphold solid biblical doctrine and equip Christians to do the same. The Alliance is a working coalition of men and women from diverse backgrounds who share a common passion for the truth of God's Word. With your prayerful support, we continue sharing that word with those who are lost and encouraging the church with solid biblical teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. The message we proclaim is one of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of hope that increases our joy and changes lives. Please prayerfully consider supporting this proclamation of hope to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us. You can make a gift online at alliancenet.org support. That's alliancenet.org support. Or call 1-800-488-1888.